Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello, I am Dr. Michael Holliday, an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Cincinnati. I'm a family physician and member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. I'm here with Sanjay Rajakopalan, Professor and Director of the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine for University Hospitals Harrington Heart and Vascular Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Rajakopalan is author of multiple pivotal studies on the effects of pollution on cardiovascular disease risk. Until recently, the role of pollution as a major cardiovascular risk factor has been largely overlooked in scientific statements and professional society guidelines. In this podcast, we will focus on the relationship between pollution and cardiovascular events, identify air pollution's effects on cardiovascular risk factors, and discuss patient-centered and societal interventions to mitigate those risks. Welcome, Dr. Rajakopalan. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. Dr. Rajakopalan, what exactly are we talking about when it comes to air pollution, and what are the constituents of this? Where does it come from? This is a a great question. I'd like to sort of restate the question as, what does environmental air pollution have to do with health? And I'd like to start off by saying that this is a massive, massive global problem. And if you look at the totality of pollution in general, estimates from the global burden of disease point to more than 9 million deaths every year attributable to known causes of environmental pollution. Now, this is more than the total number of individuals killed globally by malaria, tuberculosis, HIV, accidents, suicides, and all other infectious agents put together. So this is massive. The leading cause of environmental pollution happens to be air pollution, which together with other gaseous pollutants such as ozone, cause more than 6.5 million deaths a year, according to the Global Burden of Disease. Now, I must point out, that these estimates are likely an underestimation of pollution's true impact on global health, and in particular, global cardiovascular health. But some estimates estimating that air pollution alone can cause more than 9 million deaths a year globally. As far as your second question, what are the primary constituents of air pollution? If you look at one cause of pollution, of environmental pollution, as stated before, air pollution is perhaps the leading environmental cause of global mortality. And this is one way to think about pollution. It's a very complex chemical mixture of thousands of chemicals that sort of change spatially and over time. And depending upon the source of pollution, which could include power plants, factories, obviously automobiles, and the household in certain areas of the world, It also happens to be in the United States, certain areas where people use indoor stoves, for instance, to keep warm during winter and use fossil fuels. This might be common in North America as well. But household air pollution is very common in low-income countries where they use solid pollution for, for heat as well as preparing food. Now, of the components, it turns out that the particulate matter defined as 
particulate matter less than 2.5 microns in size, but you can quantify it just by measuring uh, the weight of suspended particulate matter. Turns out that this fraction of PM less than 2.5 microns happens to carry the most egregious associations with health globally, and in particular cardiovascular health. That is astounding. It's hard to believe that more people aren't aware of this, and I'm certainly glad that you're sharing this with us today. When I think of environmental air pollution, one of the things I first think about here is climate change. I'm sure there's a relationship between environmental air pollution and climate change, obviously. What is the dynamic between these two issues? Thank you for bringing this up, because I think if there's one thing that I'd like to leave the audience with is that the fundamental reason why climate change occurs is because of fossil fuel combustion. Okay, this is a major, major driver, if not the most important driver of climate change, right? So using fossil fuels leads to climate change, as you know, because you release CO2, but it's the same sources that contribute to air pollution, right? So in a sense, they are inextricably connected to each other. And I'd like to state that conversely, the solutions for climate change are also centered around turning off fossil fuel combustion. And if you solve the problem of climate change, which is a massive problem, you'll automatically solve air pollution, right? You can get rid of it in an instant if you wanted to. It turns out it happens to be one of the most difficult problems that society is facing, right? So they are intricately related. So CO2 production from fossil fuel combustion directly contributes to climate change. And this is primarily, at least in North America, from automobile usage and power generation. And lately, transportation overtook a few years ago in the United States power generation as a leading cause of uh, you know, CO2 emissions and obviously air pollution. So I think our solutions for climate change, and this is what I'd like, the second point I'd like to leave the audience with, is that solutions for climate change are absolutely interconnected with air pollution. So if you tackle air pollution, you're solving climate change as well. When climate change results in increased temperatures, how does that further impact the, the situation? That's a great point because it's one of those situations where one situation worsens the other, right? Once you create climate change, climate change actually impacts air pollution because climate change leads to warmer, drier conditions, which increases the frequency and severity of wildfires, right? In many parts of the United States and California, for instance. And longer fire seasons contributes to very high levels of uh, particulate air pollution in states like California. Now, it is also true that in other arid parts of the world, there is higher incidence of dust storms, which also contributes to particulate matter. High temperatures obviously increases the demand for electricity. And if you happen to be plugged into well, an electricity source that uses coal power, for instance, that's a massive problem. So in parts of China, for instance, in parts of the United States, it actually results in increased fossil fuel combustion. Now, I just ran into a very interesting fact just two days ago, where this might surprise your viewers, 50% of power in Texas on a given day today comes from wind power. Can you imagine that? I mean, I, I would have never thought this, but the transition is happening and it's happening very fast in the United States. And that's good news for our audience today. That is uh, hopeful news indeed. So I, I have to confess that um, I was not aware of the link between the environment, in particular environmental air pollution, 
and cardiovascular events. Could you inform our audience about that relationship? What's the impact of air pollution on environmental pollutants and how does this affect cardiovascular events? I'd like to take a two-pronged approach to this. One is to sort of zoom out a little bit to look at the overall universe of environmental pollution. And when we're talking about environmental pollution, air pollution, as I mentioned, is one of them. But there's also ubiquitous chemicals in your environment. Plastics is a massive, massive environmental problem. There are metals, right? Uh, there's also noise pollution that goes on with air pollution. There's light pollution that's pervasive. It affects biodiversity. It affects the health of animals in our population. And certainly not to mention circadian disruption in, in individuals, which is, you know, your light day-night cycle or the fitful sleep at night might be affected by light pollution. And certainly there's some evidence that air pollution can also act as a circadian disruptor. So if you look at this, the totality, the footprint of pollution is massive. Now, if you double-click on one of those or any one of these, you, it turns out that the, that the modus operandi of many of the environmental pollutants, be it chemicals, be it trace metals like arsenic, cadmium, nickel, be it air pollution, the modus operandi by which it causes increased risk for mortality is ischemic heart disease. And that's something that I'd like the audience to know. The reason why many of these environmental pollutants kill people is because they predispose individuals to cardiovascular disease. And not only that, it also predisposes individuals to chronic disease conditions like type 2 diabetes. One, one simple fact, more than 50% of deaths due to air pollution, for instance, is directly attributable to ischemic heart disease, right? So by which I mean stroke and myocardial infarction. When we think of the different events, I've seen in some of your work, not just a, a reactive approach to looking at how can we decrease things like heart attacks and strokes, and obviously looking at air pollution and, and the effect on those events is important, but there's more opportunity in looking at some of the upstream things that are happening. So in particular, how does ambient air pollution have a direct impact on the individual cardiovascular risk factors that we're already looking at? So as I mentioned to you, um, one of the ways by which air pollution um, affects cardiovascular health is it does increase your risk for stroke and myocardial infarction, but it also changes the substrate of risk conditions like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and other chronic conditions. So the way I look at this is air pollution facilitates the, the genesis of conditions like type 2 diabetes and hypertension. And this happens over years, right? You're, you're not exposed to air pollution, you know, just one fine day. This happens over many, many years, many decades, and in fact, over a lifetime for many individuals. And beyond this chronic exposure, you have acute increases in air pollution levels, right? One day there might be a spike in air pollution level because you have a wild, wildfire in California. And that spike can also cause events in susceptible individuals. Now, when you talk about chronic disease conditions like diabetes, this is again something that might surprise our listeners today. According to the global burden of disease, almost 20%, 20% of the world's diabetes today is attributable to ambient air pollution. And as one might imagine, most of this increase comes from densely populated and regrettably polluted areas in Asia, in particular South Asia, parts of China, African countries, Middle East, for instance, but also 
you know, in what we consider pristine conditions in North America, arguably the, the burden or the attributable burden of disease in terms of numbers of people is much lower in North America, but it still exists. Similarly, hypertension, short-term fluctuations in air pollution levels, for instance, a 10 microgram per meter cubed increase in air pollution, PM 2.5 levels, in one day before, let's say you get exposed, you, you go out and you get exposed to a high level, that can increase your blood pressure acutely by 0.5 to 1 millimeter mercury, right? So that's, that's important to know. And there's some data, we published a paper taken from the SPRINT data, which I'm sure your audience is well aware of, which looked at the benefits of intensive blood pressure lowering and cardiovascular events. In the subset analysis, what we found was, if you happen to be exposed to higher levels of air pollution or high levels of PM 2.5 levels, the benefits of blood pressure lowering was exclusively in those individuals who were exposed to higher levels of air pollution. And we didn't find that the benefits actually extended to people who lived in pristine environments. So it tells you that there's a very unsuspected relationship between the air you breathe and where you are and the benefits of treatments that we take for granted work on everybody. So this is actually a, was a very surprising finding to us. You know, what I think of there is thinking about the idea of a zip code being incredibly important for one's health. And it seems that all the different types of social determinants of health, the environment obviously is very important. And you're highlighting that for us today. When it comes to health effects of secondhand smoke, also is referred to environmental tobacco smoke, what should we be concerned of there? I'd like to emphasize that these types of exposures are very related because they're all about inhaling, you know, toxins that go into your system and exert systemic effects. In other words, it's not just the lungs that they get exposed to, but your entire body, your heart, your cardiovascular system, and your brain. Now, it's important to emphasize to, to our viewers today that the dose of exposure with secondhand smoking could be sometimes 50 to 100-fold, depending upon where you are. If you go to a crowded bar, many of our younger listeners love to hang out in bars and it's crowded. And if it's a smoky bar, you know, your levels could be super high and you get exposed to a, a, a ton of pollutants because the chemical composition of secondhand smoke is very different. We know that it contains thousands of chemicals. Many of them are carcinogens. And many studies show that the, the risk of secondhand smoke is for the most part can be sometimes worse than ambient air pollution. Although this is really about the dosage, right? So ambient air pollution often tends to be a much lower level of dose. So if you happen to be in a bar that gives you very high levels, well, your estimates, your risk is also much higher. And some estimates suggest secondhand smoking, for instance, increases the risk for heart disease by a relative proportion of 25 to 30%. But it's also worthwhile reminding our listeners that it's not only heart disease that secondhand smoke predisposes to, it's also lung cancer, pulmonary disease. And in children, it's particularly egregious because it results in more frequent asthma attacks, something that's also been seen with air pollution, respiratory infections, ear infections, and sudden infant death syndrome. And all of these have also been seen with air pollution levels. So in many ways, they're interconnected, very, very related. Um, and cause problems. Well, we talked about a lot of very large problems to deal with, with a very wide scope. Are there any individual characteristics that increase exposure or susceptibility to the harm related to pollution? How can we advise our patients and our colleagues about these things? The most important aspect that people want to know is, look, what does it mean for me and how, how do I protect myself? And it's important to point out 
that individual risk factors are very simple. If you happen to be older, you've got pre-existing cardiovascular conditions, COPD, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, organ transplants, if you're immunocompromised, these all increase your risk to exposures, you know, to air pollution. And I would add other environmental pollutants as well. You mentioned something that's really important, which is this intersection between where people live and, you know, air pollution often keeps great company as well, sadly so. And it often happens to be that many social determinants of health, including poverty, food deserts, reduced tree cover, are collinear. In other words, you co-segregate with air pollution. So it's one of the reasons why I think air pollution also works is because it keeps good company, unfortunately, with other things that uh, predispose uh, social determinants of health. And I think you had another question about interventions, but maybe we can, you know, I, I'll turn this over to you back again to see where we should go next. And now that I've thought of better ways to maybe assess the risk of uh, my individual patients, if I want to give them some uh, patient-centered interventions that they can do, that they can take action with, what would you suggest I tell them? Yeah, I think the first is just awareness, right? Uh, the awareness to the fact that uh, the air you breathe and the environment that you live in often has a great impact on your health. And an you know, audience needs to understand that risk is a very complex term and a number of factors modulate your risk. And individual susceptibility. So if you happen to be a person with uh, advanced age, uh, for instance, and again, age is a tricky topic because there are many people who are physiologically fantastic. Chronologically, they might be much older, but physiologically, they're much younger, right? So I think I have to contextualize that. But if you happen to be somebody with risk factors, pre-existing conditions, had a previous heart attack, stroke, diabetes, then you should take precaution. You should pay attention to the environment you're in. So if you happen to be in a state where there's high levels of pollution in North America, surprisingly, things have really changed dramatically, you know, compared to 20, 30 years ago, but still, there, there is a risk if you happen to be in environments with high levels. So I think people should consult the local air quality index, which you can get on any website. Air Now is a good one from the government, provides you air quality indices. And in those, if you, have, if you happen to be in California, there's a wildfire raging, then it's a good idea to protect yourself. What could you do? Well, one is avoid being exposed. So go into an environment where you reduce your air pollution levels. That includes usage of air conditioning, closing your windows, you know, wherever possible. Use uh, air filtration devices. Personal air filters are very effective in reducing air pollutants. And that includes cabin air filters and cars. So keep your air conditioning on. Clean your filters very often. Stay indoors. And if possible, take an alternate route. If you happen to be going down a very crowded highway and you are uh, behind idling trucks, it might be a good idea to take a green route or, you know, even walk to work if you can, even better. You're solving two problems at the same time, right? N95 masks have become ubiquitous, unfortunately, due to COVID. Very effective in reducing air pollutants. So a fitted N95 mask can protect you from COVID, but also protect you from air pollution, right? And try to reduce exposure to indoor sources. So try not to go out to bars with high levels of tobacco smoke or pollution, and certainly, I think, ensure that you live in an environment where you know, there's good exposure to clean air. I know that the plate of many uh, primary care providers is already pretty full. Yes. What are some team-based approaches that we can use to um, work together in healthcare teams to guide our patients on some of these changes? 
No, that's exactly right. I think the mandate and challenge for primary care providers is massive, right? And you know, it's one other thing to think about. And we certainly don't want that to become the focus of discussion. I think I always tell people, look, first treat risk factors aggressively. We live in a healthcare environment where you know, we know a lot of things, but there's a huge implementation challenge. You know, we have people not taking their medications. We have physician inertia. You know, we have a huge mandate to solve existing conditions. So where does air pollution fit in, in, in a framework of a busy clinical practitioner? What I would say is just be aware. If you happen to live in an environment where there's a high exposures in particular, uh, you have to be less worried if you're living in the Sylvan mountainous climbs of Idaho or Colorado where air pollution level is really not a problem. So you, that's one thing off your list. But if you happen to live in a state where there's high levels of air pollution, be aware of it and just make sure that your team members also are aware of it. Maybe that's a conversation that your nurse can have. And if, if asked, you can bring this up to your patient. But it's all about recognizing that this is a problem in your community or state and having the appropriate conversation as an adjunct after you've had conversations regarding things that they actually should be doing to take care of their health. I can imagine there's a lot of people listening who would like to advocate for some larger changes at the societal level. What would you highlight as a, a few society-level strategies to reduce air pollution-related cardiovascular risk and climate change? I think the strategies to reduce air pollution are completely aligned with efforts to mitigate climate change, right? This is uh, singularly, as you mentioned, the most important. As a society, our governments, our uh, politicians, other local organizations, national organizations, international organizations, you know, have to chart a very comprehensive decarbonization strategy. And in this regard, I'm very happy to say the Inflation Reduction Act is a massively important effort to reduce air pollution and climate change because, strictly speaking, if this actually works as projected, this is going to result in a massive, massive reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 42% by 2030 compared to 2005. So over a 25-year period, you're going to see close to not quite 50%, but 42%. It would have been nice to see a 50% reduction, but the United States hopefully is on track to achieve complete decarbonization by 2050. And as I mentioned, my Texas analogy was really true because you know we are really making tremendous advances in clean power and decarbonizing our grid. That's going to drop your air pollution precipitously. The electric transition to electric vehicles is going to, you know, obviously it's on wildfire, and no pun intended, in China. But in the U.S., hopefully beyond 2025, there's going to be a massive shift to clean cars. Now, a lot of people argue about the climate cost of production of electric cars, and that's a discussion for another day hopefully. But I think, you know, by decarbonizing your grid, by decarbonizing your industries, by decarbonizing transportation, that's really going to solve air pollution for good. And obviously, I think other subsidiary means like green infrastructure, having, you know, climate-friendly cities, having urban environments that are green, you know, where you can walk and have not be exposed to a cloud of air pollution or plastics or pollutant, other pollutants is really going to be important. And finally, education campaigns. That's without goes without saying, right? You got to empower our patients, our uh, predisposed individuals with tools and campaigns to protect, to protect themselves. And not only that, provide them monitoring tools so that they can be aware of, uh, you know, uh, hazards in the background. I think we can conclude that air pollution is a major 
often unrecognized cause of adverse health effects, particularly cardiovascular disease. And it's important to assess individual patient uh, risks and susceptibility so that individuals can take some steps to minimize their own exposure. At the broader level, it's also critical to understand the impact of those exposures and to take some steps to eliminate them. Dr. Rajagopalan, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I also want to extend a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio please visit our website at cardio.org for additional resources on cardiovascular health. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.